Hello, this is Thomas Cruz of SAE & Associates. Hope everyone's enjoying the fall season. As we approach winter, we at SAE advise that this is the time for nonprofits to be gearing up for the grant season, mainly so that they're ahead of the game rather than scrambling only after so many new funding opportunities are released. We've already seen a few FOAs at this point and can expect more to continue rolling out. So today, I have with me a familiar voice for our podcast. Please introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Mai, and I'm glad to speak to you today. At SAE, I'm the Director of Population Health Management. For today's podcast, we have special guest Stan Kuznets, who has years of experience in SAMHSA work. We'll be talking SAMHSA grants and, in particular, how to improve the quality and competitiveness of an application. Stan, why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners a bit about yourself and your involvement in SAMHSA before we get started. Okay, actually, uh, I was with uh, SAMHSA for over 20 years, and I was a review administrator, uh, becoming the senior uh, review administrator uh, during that time. I actually developed a lot of the materials that SAMHSA uses right now for, for review, including their present scoring system. So I think that gives me a little bit of insight in how SAMHSA works. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. SAMHSA, at face value, uh, appears to be quite organized in how they operate. Um, talk about the important elements of a SAMHSA FOA that seem to consistently exist in various funding opportunities. Sure. SAMHSA FOAs can best be described as incredibly complex. Yes. <laughs> and if you see one, you'll see exactly what I mean. Be before we actually talk about the FOA, mm -hmm. Let's talk about how the FOAs are reviewed, and then we can talk about the FOA itself. Sure. Uh, because it's complex, and when I say complex, you have a number of different uh, sections, usually uh, between four and seven. I've rarely seen any less than that, and occasionally I've seen some more. Each section has a number of questions, and what's important, each question is broken up into a number of factors. This creates a terrific problem for the applicant because you have to really respond to a lot of things within a limited number of pages. And if you're a really competent applicant and you really know your stuff, it's going to be harder for you because there are a lot of things that you know that should be in there and you may not have room. The first thing, you know, like I said, you have all these different sections and factors in the FOA. And I'll, I'll give you an example just from one that's, that's current. I'm not going to say which one it is. But it's the one, uh, I'm looking at the section of statement of need, which is worth 15 points, which is what it's usually right. worth, which is one of the uh, smaller number of points, actually, in the, number, in the different sections. The statement of need says identify the proposed catchment area and to provide demographic information on the population or populations to engage in activities through the targeted system or agencies in terms of race, ethnicity, federally recognized tri uh, tribe, language, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, and socioeconomic status. Now, when the reviewer is actually has his um, structured worksheet, and that's what the reviewers have, is a structured worksheet which is broken into all of the elements of the FOA, you'll see that just for that one, one of the 
questions where the total is worth 15 points. So the question actually is worth part of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The reviewer is going to see something where there'll be a statement that will say something like identify the proposed catchment area, provide demographic information on, and then it's going to say the populations to engage in activities, and there's going to be a number of different boxes where it's going to um, have the words in terms of race, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of federally recognized tribe, and it'll be a not applicable for that. In terms of language, in terms of sex, in terms of gender identity, in terms of sexual orientation, in terms of age, in terms of socioeconomic status. Not only do they have to see whether you addressed all of those things, they actually put down the page number of where they found where you addressed it. Mm -hmm. So you can't get away with not addressing. Mm -hmm. Very concrete. Then they have to write a subjective view of, the, of how they feel that you address that particular question overall. Now, this is, this is very interesting because that first question is really the crux of your entire application when you think about it because uh, description, the description of your population is the context, the frame of reference in which everything else in your application is going to be viewed. Absolutely. So in a sense, even if this is a part of a section with a lower value for your overall application score, this is where a lot of time and effort should be spent, simply because it ties all parts of the narrative together. That's actually an excellent point, because in being specific about your demographics, that's where you can tailor the uniqueness of why this response is different why you can be much more competitive in terms of the, the health needs of the group that you're serving, why the grant is needed in serving this population. Um, so as, as Stan was saying, it's very important to be able to be very specific, very direct about who you're serving and where that frame fits. For sure, and often a mistake that applicants do make is that they include the what's, but not the how's in their narratives, meaning how are we going to address the needs that we're stating? You know, what are, what's the process? What's the approach that we're going to take? Absolutely. And when you're, when you're doing this, also remember, because the entire uh, FOA is so complex, you have to make every word that you put down there count. Right. You leave out fluff, yeah, no you leave out things that are self-serving, you leave out hyperbole, you leave out a lot of adjectives which are not necessary. Right. Uh, each word has to drive towards accomplishing your goals and your objectives and answering that part in, in the um, uh, FOA. Now, one of the things that you want to do when you're doing that, by the way, is use your data correctly. I mean this not just for that particular question, but all the way throughout your application. You want to have as much detail as possible. You don't want to use any generalities. Generalities weaken an application. Vagueness kills an application. Mm -hmm. So everything has to be using as much detail, and the data that you use uh, should be local. Now, it's sometimes wise, often it's wise, to bring in national data to draw a contrast between your local data and the national data, particularly when, when you're talking about uh, how your population 
differs from, say, a national population or the national data, and uh, we'll get into that more when talking about evidence-based programs. Yeah, that's absolutely true because, you know, you do want, as we were saying, create a frame of reference for the reviewer as to where your population fits into the national scope of need. So, for instance, with the early development in terms of system of care, early development screening for kids, you should know where state-wise your state fits on that list. I believe California was the only one that achieved 100% of early developmental screening for kids throughout that continuum of service. But other states did not meet that high mark. And so naming where your state fits is one thing, but looking at where your community fits into it, the barriers to access of these very basic services um, in terms of national prevention agendas, but looking at disparity needs and how that impacts long term. And so it's really, really important to, as Dan was saying, provide that frame for the reviewer. They may already know that, but be succinct. State clean data, track it back to your population of need, and then to be able to accentuate, without the fluff, what it means to not have it. Yeah, and you bring up an excellent point, Loanne, because when you say they may already know that, uh, the reviewers are specifically instructed to read only what we call the black part of the application. Yes. Well, that means every application has a black part and a white part, the white part being the paper it's written on, and the black part is the are the words. The reviewers are specifically instructed not to bring in any kind of personal knowledge, not to make any assumptions, not to read between the lines. To put it very simply, if you don't put it down, mm -hmm. It doesn't exist no matter what the reviewer might know about it. Mm -hmm. It does not exist as far as you getting points towards your score. Mm -hmm. And I can give you an example of, uh, and it's an extreme example, but of how this um, actually worked to the detriment of an otherwise pretty darn good application. This was years ago. You might remember uh, there used to be a movie called Fort Apache, which had absolutely nothing to do with Native Americans. It was about a police precinct in the South Bronx that was besieged by drug abuse problems. An applicant uh, came in from that particular part of, the, uh, of New York and only kept referring to themselves as Fort Apache. They never described the drug abuse problem there. They never went into detail about it. They just kept calling themselves Fort Apache. As far as the reviewers were concerned, in terms of that application, the South Bronx did not have a drug abuse problem. Mm -hmm. Of course, it was not described. And that's an extreme example. But this kind of thing happens, and it happens often. You want to basically organize your entire application about around detail and clarity. Mm -hmm. Clarity is very important, too. I think we spoke about that, where you, know, you don't want to use generalities. Uh, one of the most common comments that a reviewer makes is not clear mm. about something right. that, that, that the applicant puts down. Make sure that the reviewer never says that. One thing that you can do also, a lot of applicants will assess the skills of the people on their staff and have each person write a section, you know, and that's a good thing to do. But what happens when you do that, if you don't have someone at the end 
looking over everything, all the sections, to make sure that there aren't any contradictions between what different writers write or the different sections, that, that it's internally consistent all the way through. That's a seamless application. Your application will suffer. Because I can't tell you how many applications I've seen where they'll give, for example, one number about the need in section A and another number about need in section C. And by the way, speaking of sections, uh, make sure, and this is something which is a little bit peculiar to SAMHSA, make sure that whatever is supposed to be re, um, answered in a particular section is answered in that section and not in a different section. Right. Because if you answer it in a different section, you will not get credit. For sure. And I want to revisit that point you made about the need for consistency. Having that external reviewer confirm consistency throughout the project narrative is key. But not only that, if the reviewer is experienced in the agency's field, then she or he can ensure that the program design is competitive and, of course, realistic for the agency to even propose. These are some of the things to focus on to give yourself the best shot at being awarded this funding. Yeah. And actually, those are some excellent points. And you want to make sure that the person reading your application is tough, and ask questions because you know that whatever question that person is going to ask are questions that the actual reviewers are going to have. One way of putting some of this in a nutshell, you really need to demonstrate that you understand your population. And in doing that, you also have to demonstrate that you, your organization, your staff have the cultural competence to work with that population, because that's something else that the reviewers look for all through the application, not just in one section. Cultural competence is very important in the SAMHSA application, and over the years, this has become increasingly so. I think that's actually really excellent because by history, you know, it's getting much more specific in terms of the demands of competency. And that's important because when we look at building up knowledge that will be disseminated out for replication across different communities, we want to make sure it addresses cultural fit. So if you're looking at serving a community that has a high HIV in terms of infection and they're heterosexual females of a certain gender and age, obviously gender, but of a certain age and cultural community, um, you need to be able to use an evidence-based practice model that's going to fit into it. And not all, as Dan was saying to me before, and very clearly those of us who know in the direct care world, not all fit. So when you're speaking about motivational interviewing, some, literally, some words linguistically do not translate. And so how are you going to address this within the requirements of this grant? How are you going to train your staff? How are they going to acknowledge, in terms of interventions, what's being done? And how are you going to deliver and evaluate this? So being specific in that way is very important. Uh, it accentuates, in terms of your expertise and your ability to reach across certain barriers, but also be able to lend expertise to the larger population and uh, help in pushing that knowledge forward. And you mentioned evidence-based practices, which of course play a major part in an applicant's proposed approach. Both of you can jump in for this one. What are some of the key things an applicant should consider when it comes to the use of evidence-based practices? Of course, one thing is making sure that they're using the most effective 
interventions and engagements for their unique target populations? Well, the first thing is use them. Use evidence-based practices to, to accomplish your goals. And, and, you know, what I mean by that is your methods and approaches should be grounded in the best available research evidence using a population that is similar to yours. And this should be informed by experiential evidence from the field, again, using comparable populations. Now, the rub is that it's often very hard to find comparable populations, you know, when you're looking at yours and the evidence-based practices. In that case, where the populations are not comparable, including culturally comparable, um, you, have, you have to include a, a cultural comparison in a convincing way, usually by giving examples and reasons on how you're going to modify your evidence-based practice to fit your population. You want to use data. This is a really good time to compare your local data with the national or statewide data to show how it differs, how it differs between your population and the population that you're looking at. Uh, and why your modifications are appropriate and do not make this evidence-based practice moot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the examples I like to bring up, um, being bilingual myself in terms of English, obviously, and Vietnamese, um, and when I did a lot of uh, bilingual clinical therapy, individual and family, is that the translation for the word depression does not actually exist in Vietnamese. The clinical term depression does not exist. To be able to translate even the word sad, S-A-D, is a very tentative sort of soft walk into the conversation. To be able to translate this, the feeling in terms of the symptoms, you actually have to use the word bong sao, which means soul sadness. It reflects the cultural, in terms of the cultural recognition of a clinical um, symptomatology that we recognize in terms of formal practice. But when you're looking at serving communities that are very different from what evidence-based practice model was initially established in, you have to consider the linguistic, the um, acculturation process in terms of generational issues and be able to verify with your staff they can implement this in a cultural fit way. That's actually going to work or else it'll be not very good and then you won't have good data and you won't have good success. Um, so it actually is in terms of the onus on the, the client implementing this grant, um, in the initial, you need to be able to express that uniqueness. Right. And staying within the confines of the application, other key elements of an application include staffing pattern, data collection, budget, to name a few. Dr. Mai, you and Amanda, who's the director of finance at SAE, have both stressed the importance of those elements not only for applications, but for the effectiveness and long-term sustainability of the organization. Can you speak to that a bit? Sure. Well, grants are time limited. I think we all know that. Grants are time limited. Even if it's multi-year, um, there's only a certain length of time in it. And so from the beginning, when you structure your staffing to be able to carry out this new program, you have to look at what's existing currently for you and then sort of project forward what sort of um, 
um, components can you move? What sort of elements infrastructure-wise can you move? So for instance, if you have peers, which is a peer model-driven uh, evidence-based practice now being recognized really well, um, and for those of us who worked in the clinical world, it came very clearly from HIV and substance treatment, the peer model. So if you have, in terms of your community of um, clinicians that you um, already have at your agency, if you have staff that you can transition to the new programs and then be able to control budget-wise what that flow looks like and report that in your application, but also look to see what sustainable process would be possible going to the future. So for instance, if you apply to a model now that's very peer-driven and you have the ability to be able to uh, carry that staff, look to see where locally your service agencies, uh, if they are supporting peer-driven models, slowly align your staff towards that. So if there are curriculums or credentialing that have to go through, do those. Because once the grant ends, you want to be able to seamlessly blend into what's existing for services so that you don't have a gap there. The hard part is when you have a grant end, and what do you do with your current clients? Right, right. You don't want to drop them um, because those of us who are in service, we are there in service for a reason. And to drop a client is, you know, it's a very terrible feeling. And so we also engage providers into conversations about, well, how is this going to go for you towards the tail end? How are you going to create this continuum of care even after in some way to be able to blend this or um, change this slightly so you can carry on services? And there are some uh, FOAs that actually ask for a description of how you're going to carry on after the grant ends. Right. And um, that, again, is something could be difficult because it's, uh, in a lot of ways, you're crystal, crystal balling the future. Mm -hmm. And can't overlook budget because when the grant ends, then the infusion of cash ends. So you have to show how you can uh, actually even support the work that you're going to do um, at that period of time. Mm-hmm. So, Stan, how can an applicant organization make its proposal unique? What makes a proposal stand out in the large pile of applications that these SAMHSA reviewers will get? Okay, so, well, the very first thing to do, uh, the very first thing to do is to read that funding announcement and make sure it fits your organization. Sure, no, no, really. That's the, it sounds very basic, but you'd be surprised how many people don't do that. And a they lot send of people in, don't. A Absolutely. lot of people don't. And they send in applications and you say, well, why are these people applying for this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then they usually don't get funded. And you know, you keep in mind, it takes a lot of time and money to write a grant application. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not an easy and cheap thing to do. Mm -hmm. We went over a lot of things that, if you actually do them, will make your grant unique because so many applicants don't. Sure. <laughs> if you use detail, if you use local data, if you use the data correctly, if you avoid, uh, if, if you avoid general, uh, generalizations and vagueness, if, if you aim towards clarity, that alone will make your application stand out from the rest. And it's a very simple thing to say. It's a difficult thing to do, but it's the kind of thing that you have to commit to do when you write a grant application. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great point to end on. So that concludes today's SAE Cares podcast. 
I want to thank Dr. Mai and Stan for stopping by today. Again, this is Thomas Cruz, and if you have any questions for me, Stan, or Dr. Mai, you can shoot me an email at tcruz at saeassociates.com, or you can tweet us at SAE underscore associates. Take care.